Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm Faye. And I'm James. Well, Faye, another week has flown by. What have you been up to? Um, this week, all the usual stuff, um, obviously all the usual client stuff, most of which I can never talk about, which is, is interesting in itself. But actually, I've done quite a lot of work this week on a CAMS B2B event. So this is me wearing my chair of the Cambridge and South CAMS committee for the Cambridgeshire Chambers of Commerce. And we're putting on an event which is really about fostering better interactions between our regional businesses. There's a local ecosystem of suppliers that we can use that's good for the economy. And so it's really about organizing that event, setting it up, making sure the right people are going. So I've done quite a bit of work on that this week. Nice. I've had a busy week too. Uh, lots of good stuff going on at the Bradfield. I also went over to the West Hub on the Cambridge University West Campus, which is a really nice space. I'm sure you've been there before. It's like an open study centre, so the general public can go in there as well as university uh, staff and students. So I went over there for a meeting of the Cambridge Innovation and Entrepreneurship Network that... Um, Friend of the show, Caroline Hyde, runs uh, along with her team. So uh, that was good. And one of the parallel lives I run with uh, my agency, we just put out a huge bit of research, which has gone down really well. Uh, So we had a kind of launch event for that on Tuesday, a couple of events. Uh, so yeah, it's been busy, busy, busy as usual. That's great. So so when you went over to the West Hub, did you take your shiny new pull-up banner? about the podcast with you no but i did think about the podcast i was i was looking around to see if there's anywhere i can leave flyers without getting escorted off the premises didn't find anywhere though so we need to have a chat to the people that run the building and see see how we can get the word out there yeah 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 or or you didn't try hard enough could be one of them so i'll I'll tell you something that will make you giggle so at the end of this week i popped down to brighton which i know you you know um very well and someone pinged me on the podcast and it's like the world's gone mad because he's like oh you're taking the podcast to brighton and i'm like no but it's (laughs) it's going to go on the road in the new year but we'll tell you about that one later and i'm like crikey everyone i think everyone just thinks all we do is a podcast um sometimes yeah yes sometimes it might feel like that but when we start putting the flies and the banners up then you know that's definitely going to be a little in your face isn't it absolutely yeah i do like the idea of going around the country though as the podcast we should definitely do that yeah for sure so let's do the news a few updates again do you want to get started A big one to start with, Californian tech giant Google is funding a long-term collaboration with Cambridge University to facilitate responsible development and deployment of artificial intelligence. Yes, they've made a significant grant to a new centre for human-inspired artificial intelligence at Cambridge to fund AI research that will benefit everyone. The partners want to help create more than £400 billion in economic value for the UK by 2030. That's a huge figure identified by Google and compiled by a company for Public First. 
as what they think is a reasonable target. And this unrestricted grant is going to be helping enable research in areas like responsible AI, human-centered robotics, human-machine interaction, healthcare, economic sustainability, and climate change. Hmm. Um, also, great news with Zempler. You'll remember we talked about them a few weeks ago when they launched their biodegradable product called Moro. They have struck a partnership with UK skin brand Elemis to launch a new innovative biodegradable sampling sachet. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant news for Sampler. And uh, make another note to myself here, get them on the podcast. Another one we should have on the podcast is PaveGen. So counting every footstep by targeting a, a £3 million worth of new funding is this company PaveGen. If you haven't come across them, do check them out as they literally harvest energy from footsteps. They've already captured billions of footsteps from more than 250 installations in 37 countries. They're very active in a, in a market. Another huge number, $51 trillion is this market. It's expected to grow to by 2025. PaveGen have doubled in revenue last year in 2022. They've got a potential 40 million pipeline of projects. They're set to scale in the US, Middle East and Asia, all really lucrative and growing markets where PaveGen have already had an astonishing 300% growth, including partnerships with industry giants such as Siemens, Volvo, Ford, and many more. Yeah, they are really interesting. They kind of have these energy-capturing paving slabs. Um, so yeah. as you say, every time someone steps on them, that, that energy is captured. Really, really interesting. Our friends at Business Weekly have a, their print and, edition, and digital edition coming out on the 26th of October, and that features their annual Deals of the Year special, which highlights major transactions in the cluster in the preceding 12 months. Yeah, so the big numbers include the near-certain $5.7 billion acquisition of life science company Abcam that we've talked about in the past by US-based Danaher Corporation on November the 6th, and ARM's recent $4.84 billion IPO on NASDAQ. And uh, also includes the funding raised by Cambridge companies since uh, October 26, 2022. We're hitting you with a lot of numbers in this news uh, bulletin, but uh, here's another one for you. Collectively, they have raised an impressive $1.5 billion. And that doesn't include all the companies that write press releases with the statement undisclosed amount. Absolutely. So if you add everything that's on the deals of the year list together, it comes to a whopping fundraising and M&A total of 14.5 billion this year. So yeah, significant numbers there. Hmm. So to find out more, um, check out the Business Weekly newspaper next Thursday. And if you're out of the UK or Cambridge, go to their website. And now for today's episode, there's often media coverage on all the reasons not to do business in China, including this week just gone. So after the topic has come up on various podcasts we've run so far, we thought we'd invite along Ting Zhang, who is the original and longest standing font of all knowledge on doing business with China based here in Cambridge. Ting has run a consultancy business and is founder and CEO of crayfish.io. So, James, let's get the conversation started. Ting, great to have you here today with us. Thank you for joining us. Let's start with the big questions. First of all, tell us about the culture of doing business with China. You know, some things that people might not be aware of. Hi, James. It's great to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. Now, the Chinese culture is actually coming less different, I would say, with the last decades of economic development. However, there's still some traditional cultural values that are different. 
So Chinese people have been influenced by Confucianism, which has been uh, there for 2,500 years. So there's some values, for example, the importance of uh, uh, society and family. And then finally, it's the individual. So that's uh, very much embedded in people's thinking and behavior. And also the concept of hierarchy that you can see all the way through the government, the business, uh, families. How do those values manifest to the business community? So is it a case you're doing business with China, you have to keep that hierarchical level? How does that work? Indeed, for example, um, if you are a UK company, if you go, uh, if your CEO goes, you'll get seen by the CEO. If you send an engineer there, you'll get seen by an engineer. So that's very straightforward almost. Oh, there are exceptions, but this is typically the case. In a Chinese to you know, traditional way of negotiation, you have the big boss in the middle and you have like 10 people maybe sit around, but no one would talk because only the boss would talk. And that, that's how it, it typically works. Talking back just, uh, you know, the different, um, uh, different ways to do business in China, it's not so much also cultural. It's also, I think a lot of people are not appreciative is China has a totally different economic model in that here we in the West, we have market economy. And in China, it's a combination, a unique combination of the state plus the market economy. So the state is an is a active player in how the business and economy is run. And a lot of people only understand a little bit, but not in detail. So give us a practical example of how that plays out uh, and how that might affect, you know, a UK-based startup trying to do business in China. The Chinese government will make industrial policy every five years. So they will say, okay, in the next five years, we're going to double our GDP, or, or is specifically, they would say, we will, you know, increase the domestic production level or domestic R&D level in certain industry to this level. They want the whole nation to follow that direction. And this is so-called the whole nation system. For example, in a semiconductor industry, China, as you have read, has been forced almost. This would be an unintended consequence as the Western's policy, particularly U.S., to not allow China to access certain cheap technology. And as a result, China has put billions, well, altogether $250 billion worth into developing that. And that has created enormous business opportunities for startups in this sector. There's a lot of money and policy support available. And we have seen that number of Cambridge semiconductor companies taking advantage of the market opportunity. It's a huge, enormous market opportunity. We will come back to that. But I kind of want to push back a little bit on the answer into doing business with China. And I do know you very well, so listeners don't have to worry that I'm starting to bully Ting here because this is it's not a conversation we don't normally have. You know, businesses are really challenged at the moment. They're getting such mixed messages from the US, even the recent party conferences in the you know relative places around the UK. They gave no clear direction on how to do business with China. Should you be doing it? Shouldn't you be doing it? Individual certainly have got a very strict anti-China stance. What's the answer to that question? There is not a clear answer. I think what happened is all these different messages and confusion 
confusing messages have led to people kind of not sure for business uh, people. They're not sure what government stance is. And uh, for people like us, we're advisors. We are also not sure what the UK government is thinking or doing. Uh, however, um, I think it's only changed uh, how people how people react to their approach of doing business in China. In fact, most of our clients and the companies we were talking to are still very interested in doing business in China. It's just they don't broadcast it if they have success. Well, in the past, if they have a Chinese investor on board, they would do a PR to say that. Now they don't. And now if they rely on a lot of uh, their market in China, again, they won't say it. They all, Some of the exec told me they almost feel like guilty to say it. This is absolutely incredible. So at the end of the day, the business, if they are doing well overseas market, is something to celebrate because it helps the UK to, you know, increase the employment and, uh, you know, to keep doing more R&D, et cetera. So I think, you know, it's very difficult to look at what the government and certain individuals or party lines on that. I do hope in the next coming year with, in the election, we may see some more clearer action. And I know you've um, done an interview yourself recently with Herman Hauser, and he talked very much about tech businesses. China should be part of their, their policy. So, so let's if, if we can, can we pick up on, on some examples of companies that are out there and that you can talk about that, you know, they're actually doing some good work in China? I remember very well when I talked to Herman Hauser in a, a few months ago, and uh, he said, absolutely, all deep companies must have a relationship with China just due to the size of the market. I work closely with the companies in Cambridge from engineering to semiconductors to software to some now extend life science companies. And we have a number of clients uh, that are really doing uh, very well in China. And recently we had a, a round table of uh, uh, eight local companies, uh, four or five of them from semiconductor to gas sensing. They are doing very well in terms of their sales. They have grown their headcount. Uh, they are expanding in the market. They have seen commercially success uh, in, in China. A number of other companies in terms of software, um, AI, they are also looking to, and now they uh, looking to enter into China. They now have also set up distributor uh, relationship in, in China. You've got some examples of companies that are successfully operating or partnering in China. When you see startups in the local ecosystem, do you think there's a lack of awareness of opportunities with China? Do they, do they think about China as an opportunity too late in their kind of development? I think now compared to uh, 20-something years ago when I first started my consultancy to advise Cambridge companies about China, it has changed uh, a lot. All the companies are actually I talk to are aware of China opportunities, whether they are very early stage startup or they are scale-ups. So, for example, I was talking to a medical uh, AI company and they are still going through the FDA stage with US, but they're already thinking, what should we do with China? Because for this particular disease, they're looking at China as one of the biggest market. And therefore, we are looking to say, okay, you need two years to plan for the Chinese medical registration approval. So it's good that they already put that on the agenda. 
So for them, uh, if they want to be global successful, China is part of the plan. Typically, they start US and then China. Let's move on and talk a little bit about crayfish, if we can now. So what is crayfish? How you, you When did you start it? What does it do? For crayfish, um, it was uh, very much a new business model where we can enable a lot more uh, SMEs, particularly tech companies, to um, engage with China in a better way. And as well as the, there's, there's a consulting element to the to the company, but you also have a, a digital platform, is that right? This is 2016 when there's a lot of, you know, online platform sort of model inspired by the likes of uh, um, Upwork. Um, so I set up Crayfish as uh, initially uh, with a, 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 a online marketplace where on the one end we have a SMEs who are keen to do business in China, but who may not be able to afford a senior consultant like myself or, uh, you know, a specialist, but they do need a hot ad hoc tasks done, whether it's translation or piece of research or even calling China. We then evolved to an e-commerce model where we develop ready-made business services. So you can say uh, a few thousand pounds uh, a defined market research. You can buy that from Crayfish. Crayfish will guarantee the quality and manage and deliver rather than you invite you know, freelancers or small uh, boutique agencies to uh, for proposal. So that was our second stage. Then we found that uh, a lot of clients want hand-holding, particularly the, you know, scale-ups. They they trust us. They want us to manage the projects and, and, and also be a lot more involved with them. So we then... Um, started the strategic consultancy, which is what I did before. Um, and so now we work with uh, the, the scale-up companies to help them set up in China, but also help them recruit, help them develop government relations, and a lot more uh, value added. So you've got that really good mix of whatever entry point they want to come in at, if they just have got a project that they can just buy off the shelf or the more detailed um, consultancy, and I guess a lot of people that want to work in China, they don't. Maybe they don't even know where to start. What does a company do? They're considering starting a business in China. Sometimes they just know we have to be in China, uh, and uh, sometimes they get approached by, uh, you know, unfamiliar Chinese companies to say, "Hey, we want to distribute products," and so they come to us to say. Where should we start? We typically start them with research, market research, look at, is there a real market for you? You know, what does it take for you to actually get into the market to win the first order? So we take them through that process and then we find them the actual partners. It's really important to work with good partners. We have seen cases where clients worked with partners that ripped them off, stole the IP or stole the people. And they said to me, Ting, I wish we had known you and the crayfish a few years earlier, we would have avoided all this. So it is very important to start correctly. I'm aware that you also have a, an intellectual property uh, service as part of Crayfish. That's obviously a subject that we hear a lot about in terms of one of the potential concerns of doing business in China. What's your perspective on that? Is that fair categorization or is or is it increasingly more inaccurate? Uh, you know, have there been changes around IP law and protection? Yes, IP uh, issue. In fact, uh, the chat, 
the protection, but also counterfeiting and piracy, all that had been top one challenge when I first started uh, advising companies doing business in China about 20 years ago. I would say now it has improved. And in fact, in the recent in the uh, Cambridge Tech's year roundtable we held, um, IP should become number three. So number one was uh, recruiting the right talent. And uh, number two was working with a partner and you know making that work. So IP become the third because people find out that you can actually protect your IP if you do things um, you know in the right way. So I would say China has improved enormously. Um, now uh, you can see that China has established IP special IP courts to ensure that actually foreign company can um, having their IP rights defended properly in in court with the judges who actually understand how the Western practice works. China actually now tops um, the world in terms of number of patent applications. So it receives more than any other country patent. So it has to protect because a lot of this coming from Chinese domestic companies. You, you all know Huawei. It has like, it actually, I think it's about six, 7,000 patents. They apply a year, the last year or so. Uh, so that has prompted the government to take this really serious, but also the Chinese companies. So now you are talking about IP, people understand, and there's a whole industry developed, for example, uh, you know, one of our new shareholders, they are IP group in China. They have grown a lot in the last few years and raising also money to expand overseas. That gives you another string to your bow as well, doesn't it? Because another part of your portfolio that you have recently launched with the IP company is helping UK owners of IP to go to protect but also to commercialize IP in China. How does that work? Yes, in indeed. Uh, this is very exciting for us uh, with the uh, uh, new investment from our uh, new shareholder, Sino Group, uh, in China. We are now uh, launching a new uh, business model in an IP uh, space where we help the IP owners not just protect their IP in China, which is typically straightforward, but also to commercialize. In its basic form, we would um, select uh, those technologies that has good market potentials in China. I'm really interested to get your perspective on what it's been like as a Chinese national in the UK for more than 20 years. I came to the UK in 1997. I did my MBA at the Judge Business School, which was really a, a fantastic, a fantastic experience in terms of not just learning knowledge, but you know, expanding my personal network, which I'm still, you know, benefiting now today. And uh, then I went to work. Typically, you know, as MBA, you're going to the city, so I went to work in a city as a commercial bank of a Standard Charter Bank in in a city. Then I only came back two years later uh, when my husband started his uh, academic career. When we decided, when we started a family, it was not possible to commute to London. So I came back to Cambridge, set up my own first consulting business. And uh, I remember I said to my husband, if within six months I don't find any clients, I will go find any job. Um, but then within a few months, so lucky enough, I landed on my first clients was, I think it was Saar and TDBCon at the time. And I was, you know, very much sort of 
taken the companies, uh, helping them multiple fronts in into China. So the rest was a history. I was like doing all the time UK and and China. So personally, um, I really enjoyed uh, leaving. And and working in in Cambridge, even through COVID years, I had you know I had not a problem as a Chinese individual. I did feel a bit more conscious sometimes, particularly you know when there's a lot of racism going on in other parts. You know, one of my friends got poured coffee onto her you know onto her face. She was pregnant. You know, she was in London. She was a very respectable city investment banker. And then another Chinese, stu- you know, lecturer, uh, you know, got uh, also treated badly in Southampton. But in Cambridge, I felt safe. I think partly because Cambridge has a, a large Chinese population, partly because Cambridge is, well, at least within a sort of uh, um, uh, the, the tech a sort of business community uh, is, is very safe. And uh, I actually read that in Cambridge, the community, the Chinese population has gone up 40% in the last 10 years. So now it has about 6,000-something population, not to include the 2,000 uh, Chinese students in the University of Cambridge. And compared to when I was, uh, when I came in 1997, there were about 200 Chinese students. So it's, it's gone uh, exponentially. And then the second part of the question is, you know, you're a founder of your own company, your own startup. So looking back um, as a founder uh, for Crayfish, and uh, I think what really worked is uh, you have to start with a good business model. Um, but in the meantime, um, as a founder, you have to be flexible and adapt to the market condition. Uh, nevertheless, uh, in the meantime, <laughs> I think I have to actually stick to the mission. So that's how I feel. For example, uh, we had a business model of online platform, and then we adapted our service uh, and business model. But in the meantime, our mission of facilitating UK, China, trade and investment and helping companies succeed, that has not changed. Uh, so believing in, in that is very important. Another one is really, I think many founders would say the same, is the team that is very important. Part of my legacy with Crayfish is really down to the support uh, I have enjoyed from Cambridge at the community and the ecosystem. Uh, at early stage of Crayfish, I was very lucky to have uh, um, been supported by the super Andrews, uh, like Jonathan Mueller and David Cleavy, who both had used my previous consultancy for their portfolio companies and they knew how important it is to get China right. So that was uh, uh, great to have them to actually invest into Crayfish, uh, making Crayfish a Cambridge Andrews portfolio company. And so now we want to be more proactively supporting the Cambridge ecosystem. And I believe hot off the press, Ting, this week you were awarded with a highly commended award at the very prestigious Mulan Awards, which were about celebrating Chinese heritage business people in the UK. So congratulations on that. Um, What next? Uh, thank you for that. I think uh, looking ahead, uh, we, I would like Crayfish to stick to our mission, which is really helping um, companies to succeed in, in China uh, through various uh, ways of engagement and also um, looking at Hong Kong uh, and even 
maybe in the future, Singapore and other Southeast uh, Asia markets with the current new uh, network, we can offer a lot more uh, on the ground de deliver capabilities. I think now companies also are looking at um, China together with some of the other Asian markets. So we're, we're hoping we can we can do that as well. And, and on the other way around, we're talking about mainly to help companies um, to get into China and to help universities, for example, to do IPs in China. But now we are also increasing, get more inquiries from Chinese companies, particularly those companies that are more outward looking, tech companies in renewable, for example, sector, in life, uh, in medical uh, sector, and in AI as well. Are they specifically interested in Cambridge itself, or are they considering Cambridge alongside other opportunities around Europe or the US, for example? A good question, because in fact, uh, I think it's it's not uh, just refined to to Cambridge mm. or, or or even UK. In this case, this company is actually headquartered Europe, but with an office in, in Cambridge. Thank you, Ting, for coming in today and sharing your insights with us. It's been really interesting. Thank you for having me. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. High-performance computing and AI is being used to positively transform society and mitigate climate change. KO Data's 100% renewably powered data centers support the mission-critical workloads of life sciences, biotech and AI startups in Cambridge. Find out how we can reduce your digital carbon footprint at kodata.com slash contact. KO Data, proud to sponsor the Cambridge Tech Podcast. I used to work for a charity. I used to work in hospitality. I used to work in recruitment. Now I'm training, training for a career in tech. Our mission at Tech Educators is to cultivate the tech talent of tomorrow by making high quality software development education accessible to everyone at any level or personal circumstance. If you're looking to hire the diverse tech talent of tomorrow, then contact us today.